Have we ever heard or have we ever sung the following words? We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity may one day be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love. By our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. If you go back and you look at this hymn, you find, I think, that most will trace it back to 1968. It's fairly recent. And you'll also, I think, find that it is attributed to a Catholic priest. As I think about the words of this hymn, I'm reminded of some information in Exodus chapter 11. Exodus 11 tonight, we're going to have a lot of material to cover, probably too much to take notes and try to focus on the material. Uh, Hence, you have a handout. In Exodus 11 verse 7, the text says, but against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that ye may know that Jehovah doth make a distinction between the Egyptians and Israel. Now you may remember that in this section of uh, Exodus, we have had nine plagues. It's time for the tenth plague that is the death of the firstborn. And God said this is going to be unlike anything that has ever happened or anything that will happen. And there's going to be a great cry throughout the land. After this plague comes... The Pharaoh, the Egyptians, they're going to send you packing. You're going to be free to go. And God says, as he describes this process, Exodus chapter 11, verse 7, he says, I'm going to make a distinction. There is going to be a separation. It's going to be obvious that there are my people and there are the Egyptians, the people who are not my people. Well, I think maybe you can now see why I connected this information to that hymn. They'll know we are Christians. There's going to be a distinction. There's going to be a separation. As we live in the Christian era, there are sometimes, I think, far more distinctions between Christians and non-Christians than we may consider. We live in what still many regard as a Christian nation, and yet I'm not sure that we spend sufficient time in certain situations distinguishing the saved from the lost. In fact, I suspect that there are many people, some even in the church, that do not see much of a difference between the Christian the person who is a true follower of Christ and the one who is not regarded as saved in the sight of God. This evening I want to see if we can set forth several of the things, it's not an official list or anything like that, but I want to see if we can set forth some clear, some distinct, some obvious qualities between Christians and non-Christians. Now, if you're a preacher looking at this topic, you could go at this in a lot of different ways. In fact, it would even be possible to do a series on how Christians differ from non-Christians, but I wanted to wrap this up in one lesson. And as I gave consideration to this, I thought this might be a good time to go to that book which many consider to be off-limits, and that is the book of Revelation. If there is a single book in the Bible that does a great job again and again when it comes to distinguishing Christians from non-Christians, the book of Revelation would seem to be it. So tonight, we're going to take what might be thought of as a jet tour through the book of Revelation to see how Christians are distinguished from non-Christians. And it's going to be quick, so just in case you feel a little overwhelmed, uh, the outline may be helpful to go back and review at a later time. We start with Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is he that reads, and they that hear the words of the prophecy, and keep the things that are written therein, for the time is at hand. When we think about saved people, how they are often distinct from the unsaved, we find that they are people who hear the Bible. They are people who are willing to read the Bible as well. Now, as we make some of the distinctions tonight, not every distinction is going to apply to every person or every circumstance. And we might also, as we look at these things, um, 
want to be aware of the fact that there are going to be degrees. When we say the unsaved are not interested in this or the unsaved do not do this, that may not be true in an absolute sense. Uh, so if you, we bear those things in mind, that's going to help us. But here John says the saved, they want to hear the Bible. And not only do they want to hear the Bible, they want to read the Bible. When we look at the unsaved, and again, this sometimes is a matter of degree, but we often find among the unsaved, the unrighteous, that they have little interest in Scripture. Or the interest that they do have in studying God's Word, it is not all that deep. It's not all that serious. When we think about the saved, though, a righteous person wants to know God's Word. The righteous person wants to be aware of what Scripture says so he or she can apply that information in his or her life. This is the main goal. Then we also see in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, the idea of keeping God's Word. If you look at the unsaved, they are typically not all that interested in keeping God's Word. They may want to keep out of jail. They may want to keep out of prison. They may want to keep away from getting a visit from the police or the IRS or some other government agency. But as far as a, a passionate desire to keep God's Word, we generally do not find that. Just one verse in Revelation, first chapter, verse 3, provides multiple, several distinctions, several clear contrasts between the saved and the unsaved. But there are still other things in Revelation 1 that allows us to draw some contrast. Notice verse 10. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. On the Lord's day, and this seems to be another way for describing Sunday, John was in the Spirit. When we think about the unsaved, where are they on the Lord's day? Where are the unrighteous when Sunday comes? Well, if you know some people who are among the unsaved like I do, they're probably not attending services when it comes to Sunday. They may say, I work hard throughout the week, and that's probably true. And Sunday's my day of rest. I may work six days a week, sometimes even uh, Sunday is a work day for me, and I want to get in some extra shut-eye on Sundays. Others will say, well, I don't get out to the golf course very much. And especially in the summer months, Sunday is a day for me to go out and golf. Or I love to fish, I love to hunt, I like to target practice, I need to work around the house, and Sunday is my day. Well, that's how the unsaved think. The righteous people like John, Sunday is the Lord's day. Uh, we might be able to include some other things on Sunday, but still, the Lord's day is going to take precedence as far as honoring Christ. The unsaved, the spiritually weak, do not. Looking at the next chapter, Revelation chapter 2. Let's say we, we find in that second chapter, looking at the second verse. I know that works and thy toil, and patience, and that thou cannot bear evil men. And you did try them that call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you did find them false. If you talk to a person who is not in a right relationship with God, they're probably not all that concerned about proper doctrine. Well, everybody has different beliefs, and the Bible's a complicated book, those kinds of things are said, and they really do not have much interest in getting things right when it comes to Scripture. For the unsaved, one religion is often as good as another. You have your church service, I'm fine with that, I'm fine with this other religious group, it just does not matter all that much. For the saved, that's not their attitude. For the saved, there is truth. There is that divine standard. And the saved, they want to know the truth, they want to hear the truth taught, they want to obey the truth because they love the truth. When we think about the saved in contrast to the lost, we also find Revelation 2 verse 3. That saved people want to live according to the Christian life, the Christian standard in every respect. That third verse says, And thou hast patience, and it's bare for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. Do you know someone who's grown weary in some way? Religious, maybe not religious. Save people, John says, persist in the faith. Save people refuse to quit. They're not quitters. Save people keep on going regardless. Save people will persevere even to the point if it means you're going to die. Remember Revelation 2.10, Be thou faithful 
even to the point of death, and thou shalt receive the crown of life. I can name some people, and this is a sad thing for me, I can name some people who will say that they will live for Jesus. Well, that's commendable. But as I look at that list of people who would say that I will live for Jesus, if I were to go back to that same list of people and say, how many are you willing to die for the Lord? The list gets smaller, a lot smaller. And if we were to ask the question in a slightly different way, how many of you are willing to die for Jesus right now? There might only be a couple people on that list. I want to live. I don't want to lose my life for Christ, especially not this moment. Then as we look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, we read about persecution. Persecution comes in different forms, but in Revelation 2, verse 13, the persecution here involves death. And yet, even though there was with Antipas that great persecution, we find that these people did not relent. And that's not what we find when it comes to the unsaved. If there is a threat against property, person, wealth, the unsaved will say, well, that's okay. I will do what you want. I'll back down. I'll surrender my faith. Here's my Bible. Don't expect us to show again. That's not the way for the unsaved. We will be faithful even to the point of death. And then in verse 19 of Revelation 2, we have another distinction John makes between the saved and the lost. The Christian and the person who's not a Christian. There he said, I know thy works, and thy love and faith and ministry and patience. And here's the key part, and that thy last works are more than the first. John said as he addressed his congregation that there were people whose last works were more, better, superior than the first. You see, when we deal with the unsaved, they're often content with their level of works. Well, this is how much I'm willing to offer. This is how much I'm willing to read the Bible. This is you know, what I'm doing, and I'm not willing to, or really interested in going beyond that. John says that's not true for the saved. The saved people, they want to grow, they want to expand, they want to do better, they want to learn more, they want to be more spiritual, they want to find additional ways that they can help. They want to get better instead of say the same or decrease. Now, if you're following along, and I appreciate the fact that many are, let's move over to Revelation 3. And now from that third chapter in Revelation, see what we find in verse 4. But thou hast a few names in Sardis that did not defile their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Saved people, they want to walk with Christ. They want to live according to that Christian standard. They want to, in this life, wear white. God's people, the people who are on the road to heaven, they want to have lives which are spiritually, morally, upright, and pure. If you listen to unsaved people, you usually don't find very much interest in having a righteous life. Or they might say, we want to be a good person. But ask them, do you want to be holy? Do you want to be righteous? Do you want to live in such a way where you look like a child of God? Oh no, that's, that's too much religion for me. Well, there's a difference between the saved and the lost. There are actually people, as we think about the unsaved, they'll look at sin in various forms. And they think it's funny. They look at it as a joke. They see that as something that instead of putting off, they want to put on. And in some cases, the more sin that an unsaved person commits, the happier he or she may be. And they may even boast about it. Save people, though, in contrast to that, they want to step back. They want to distance themselves. They want to free themselves from sin. Not live in it, not walk in it, not get deeper in it. Save people. Sticking with Revelation 3, but now looking at the information in verse 16, John says that they are distinct because they refuse to be lukewarm. When we look at people who are unsaved, maybe somewhat spiritually inclined, but not in a right relationship with God, we find lukewarmness. Part of that lukewarmness is being Undependable. The saved, in contrast to the unsaved or the lukewarm, they're hot for God. 
They are, as we talked about for Revelation chapter 2, they are people who have that undying, unyielding, and unending commitment for spiritual things. For spiritual things. For the saved, God is worth all they have. God is the center of my life. God is the one that we look to day and night and throughout the day. Skipping Revelation chapter 4, let's see what we find from Revelation chapter 5. And in this fifth chapter, we'll look at both, of the, both verses 8 and 9. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense. And then John identifies these bowls. He says we're not talking about literal bowls. He says they're the prayers of the saints. And then in verse 9, And they sing a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and didst purchased unto God with thy blood, men of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And then he talks about what happened to them in verse 10 and following. The unsaved, John said, pray. They pray. And then in Revelation 5 verse 9, we, uh, the saved pray, excuse me. And then he says in verse 9, the saved, they also pray. When you look at the context, you find that it is, um, as far as the surrounding verses, a time spoken of where people honor God. When I think about the unsaved, they often find people they will call to God. They will pray to God when they want something. When we look at the unrighteous, and I don't necessarily mean that they, in our minds, or eyes would be morally corrupt, but they're not living the Christian life as God describes it, we find people who often look upon God as a butler. When they have a need, when they have a desire, Oh God, help me. Oh God, give me. Oh God, I want. Oh God, serve me in this way. But that's not what we find when we deal with the righteous. The righteous, they want to pray, they want to honor God in every way that they can, one of which is singing. The saved, though, are not focused, the unsaved, though, are not focused on that. It's God, give me, bless me, fulfill my desires, and so forth. In Revelation chapter 7, we find some information that is summed up by the word sealing. It is in this chapter that John talks about the 144,000. That, of course, is a symbolic number to describe all the saved. John says the saved, they bear God's seal. Now, this may be less obvious to us than some of the other qualities or characteristics, but John says if we want to distinguish the saved from the lost, we need to realize that both are, if you will, sealed. The unsaved, they bear the devil's seal. That's the stamp that they have, if you will. I'm a child of the devil. But on the other hand, the Bible says that God's people, they are sealed with the seal of God. From this chapter, let's take a look at verse 14, towards the end of it. There it says, And I say unto him, My Lord, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they that come out of the great tribulation. And they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. When we think about trying to distinguish the saved from the lost, what do we find? We find that saved people have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. They've been freed from their sins. Their spiritual robes are spotless. They are people who, if you will, they stand in God's grace. We may not think about it too often, but as we read through the Bible, we find again and again God distinguishing His people from the unsaved. And people today sometimes, I think, get the impression, well, you know, everybody's a Christian. Oh, no. When we start looking at the Bible, the Christians, they start to stand out like a sore thumb. If you were to take a Christian who is living according to the New Testament and put him out there in the world with uh, 500 people, 1,000 people, 10,000 people, and he's the only one, if he or she is actually living the Christian life, that person should stand out like nobody else. And that's going to be true regardless of time and culture. Revelation 7 verse 13 describes the saved throughout the Christian era as clothed in white. Now that's not literally true. But we associate white with purity, cleanliness, holiness, especially in the book of Revelation, and even the world to some degree makes that association. Ever hear a Christian described as a goody-two-shoes? I have over the years. And they've been described as some other things as well. You see, on at least some level, 
the world recognizes the fact that Christians are to be distinctive. I'll tell you as a preacher, I get that from time to time. Why, you're a preacher. You can't do that. You shouldn't do that. Well, uh, and certainly there are some things that you know, uh, preachers need to avoid. Elders need to avoid. Every Christian needs to avoid. Why? Because we're distinct from the unsaved. We're trying, when, it, when we think about the spiritual robe that's white, we're trying to keep that robe spotless. Revelation 7 verse 15 continues the thought there. John talks about the saved and he says that they seek to serve God day and night. The righteous are focused on God. It's not show up once a year at Easter. It's not coming out at Christmas time. It's not coming to the Thanksgiving service and saying, oh God, we're so thankful, we're grateful that Jesus came into the world. No! Did not Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's the Christian. That's the person that's trying to truly live for God. That's not the life of the unsaved. Saved people want to live for God. They want to serve God to the best of their ability every single day. They might be weak, they might be sick, they might be poor, they might have the worst minds in the world. But that individual understands, God, you are my God. And my life is dedicated to you. I'm going to give you the very best I can as often as I can because I love you fully throughout all my days. When it comes to the unsaved, how do they see Christianity? Maybe not everybody in the same way. But at least there's some who see that see it as a waste of time, something that's stupid, a complete waste of time and resources. Moving past Revelation chapter 8, as we look at Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, we have the word repentance used in both of those verses. When we think about who a saved person is, they have some of the same issues that the unsaved do. I think sometimes people look at the um, Christian and think, well, you know, you're not struggling with drugs, or you're not struggling with alcohol, or you're not struggling with pornography, you're not struggling with lying, uh, you're not struggling with being a bad parent. Christians have all those same struggles. But there's a difference. The Christian repents. Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. The unsaved says, well, I'm fine with that. That's the way that life is. And everybody does that kind of stuff. I'm not going to change. God says, for the saved, the righteous, that's not going to be the way that he or she lives. When it comes to the saved and the lost, this book, and really every book in the New Testament, says that there are two very distinct classes of people and they live in very completely different ways. So we might wear some of the same clothing. We might have a wedding ring or we might wear a necklace and we might wear the same brand of shoes and some other things uh, that the unsaved have. But we are on two drastically different courses. The idea that Christians and non-Christians are basically the same, it is completely wrong. When a person tries to truly repent and become a Christian, he or she, among other things, has a new attitude when it comes to the Bible. Let's take a look from Revelation 10 at what we find in verse 9. That ninth verse says, And I went unto the angel, saying unto him, that he should give me the little book. And he saith unto me, Take it, and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but in thy mouth it shall be sweet as honey. Thinking about some of the hymns that we have in our songbooks, do we not at various times sing words like, Give me the Bible? It's the precious book divine. We want it. Give it to us. We want to eat that book. We want to know what it says. We want to follow what it says. We want to share what it says. We know that there is some difficult information in that book. And that's what we see here in Revelation 10, verse 9. John says some of that information was bitter. There is some difficult, there is some hard. There are some things in the Bible that sadden us, thinking about the fate of the lost. But still, John's attitude was, I'm going to eat thy word. Not literally. But symbolically, I'm going to make sure I have that word as part of my life, and it's going to me to be sweet as honey. It's something that I'm looking forward to. I want to eat this on a regular basis. 
Have you ever spoken with a person who's not a Christian? Maybe a weak Christian? And they said, oh, you know, uh, Wednesday night I'm watching TV. What are you going to do? I'm going to go to Bible class. Are you kidding me? Sunday's church day. Why would you go to the building and meet with people to study the Bible on a Wednesday night? Man's attitude towards the Bible helps distinguish the saved from the lost. Then in Revelation chapter 11, John introduces something else here we have in this chapter, the image of a measuring stick. From what I can tell, it seems that John uses this imagery, this analogy, if you will, to say that God measures people. God examines people. He checks people out. And as God engages in this measuring, he determines that some people are acceptable. As he measures people, he finds that there are other people who are, if you will, outside of bounds. They don't line up with the specs. And as he evaluates each one, the saved, as they're measured, they are deemed to be acceptable to God. And the unsaved are, as God looks at them, they're measured. And they fail, they flunk, they are part of the reject pile. Imagine God looking at us and checking out our life and saying, you don't measure up. I have my standard, you're not within those parameters. And you have flunked the test. Your life is over. There is no second chance. Yes, indeed, many, many distinctions between the saved and the lost. Same chapter, Revelation chapter 11, but now looking at verse 6. John says that those who are measured and the people who are acceptable to God, they have access to God and God will respond to their prayers. If you want to know one of the main differences between Christians and non-Christians that affects people on a regular basis, here it is. Saved people can pray. And not only can they pray, the illustration that John gives in Revelation chapter 11 is a fantastic illustration. It's a way of saying that for the righteous, for the saved, they can accomplish great things through prayer. But for the unsaved, that blessing is not there. Unsaved people can call out for God's help, but what kind of help should they expect if they're part of the reject pile? Christians have the right to make their pleas to the Father and have those pleas answered. But the unsaved have no right, no ability to have Christ serve as their mediator. Those who are outside of Christ have no positive reward. But the, Revelation chapter 11, verse 18, the righteous do. The reception or the loss of a heavenly reward. Not something that we think about maybe so often in this life. Not nearly as visible as some of the other things that we may experience in this life. But it is going to be one of, in, in eternity, one of the biggest dividers. One of the biggest separations because you've got the people who are over here headed to hell and in hell for eternity and then on the other hand the people who are not being among the saved being among the righteous is not always an easy task in Revelation chapter 12 verse 10 the Bible there talks about the devil desiring to accuse the saved day and night imagine that having someone wants to accuse you having someone that wants to accuse you on a regular basis day and night non-stop whether it's just or not the devil is not friendly to God's people And I guess there's a sense in which we could also say that the devil is not friendly to the unsaved, but he sure is a lot friendlier to them than he is to those who want to live in the right way. Who wants to be good friends, or at least reasonably good friends, with the devil? Man's relationship with Satan determines whether he is lost. What a joy to know that the devil is our enemy. He's a bad foe. We're on the opposite side, and we're with the one who can defeat him. Revelation 13, verse 3. Here John says that the unsaved, they're with the majority. John spoke of in this verse the whole, the entire world following evil. When we think about the difference between the saved and the lost, the Bible tells us that one of those differences is going to be that we're with the majority. We're with most of the people 
if we are among the unsaved. One of the characteristics for being a righteous person is going to be on the narrow way, the way that most people will not take. If we're a Christian, we should not be thinking and certainly we should not be living like most everyone else in our culture. We find as we look at the unsaved that those individuals are actively seeking to fulfill hopes and dreams that are usually very secular. They're not interested all that much in the book of life. Revelation 13, verse 8. Oh, when it's time for death, oh yeah, let's think about heaven, let's think about the book of life. But that wasn't the focus of the life as they lived out their years on the earth. The saved, the righteous, one of the things that distinguishes them from the unsaved is the fact that they reject false worship. Revelation 13, verse 15. The unsaved, they're typically not all that concerned about false worship. Your church is as good as my church, we might hear. Uh, your religious book is as good as my religious book. Uh, as long as we you know, have some belief in God, we're fine. That's not how the righteous sees things. The righteous understands that there is that knowledge, that truth that we talked about from Revelation 1-3 and that needs to be followed. The saved seek God's righteousness to the point where God describes them as virgins. Revelation 14 verse 4. Not literally. But God uses that picture, he uses that imagery to say that here is the person who wants to live that pure, righteous, holy, sinless life just as Jesus did. The verse also speaks of following Christ wherever he goes. That's not the way of the unsaved. The unsaved will say, well, you know, Jesus, we know that you're a good fellow, and there's some stuff over here that's kind of shitty, we want to be involved with that. You stay over there, and when we want you, when we need you, we'll call you out. The righteous, John says, They follow Christ. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They're not ashamed of Him. They're willing to have their actions checked out. Skipping Revelation chapter 16, we come to Revelation chapter 15. Uh, One one more in Revelation 14. Uh, In fact, two more, excuse me. Uh, You find in Revelation chapter 14, verse 5, that the saved, they don't tell lies. Now sometimes they fail, sometimes they sin, but they do their very best to communicate to tell the truth. When we look at the unsaved, what do we find? often we find one lie right after another. person tells one whopper and they follow it up with an even bigger and better and worse story. Because of how God's people live, Revelation 14 verse 13 says that they get to rest after death. That's a great promise. That's a wonderful promise to finally lay down the burdens of this life to have our works follow us. We may not be able to fully appreciate that now as we go through life, but the unsaved do not have this promise. Skipping Revelation 15, we come to Revelation 16, verse 11. Here we read about men who curse God. If you listen to unsaved people, you may find that they curse God on a regular basis. They curse Him every day. They curse Him several times in a day. But for the saved, they seek to honor God, as we saw back in Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. They seek to exalt Him in every way possible, every day, and perhaps several times a day. The unsaved are so different from the saved that do you know in Revelation chapter 16 verse 15 the Bible there describes the unsaved as being naked? Not literally true. But God's people, they are compared to wearing those beautiful white robes. And God says, that's how I see you. That's your spiritual life. But God says, as I look at the people who are not following that path, it's like they're a naked man. A naked woman out there in society. Revelation chapter 17, verse 4, the next chapter. We have here the unsaved pictured as wearing beautiful clothing. Purple, gold, decked out with pearls, other fine jewelry. Have we ever stopped to consider that some of the best dressed people in this life, as they had their time on the earth, are going to spend eternity in hell? Hell's going to have some people who are great dressers in life. 
And that's because the world, they like what's outward. The world likes the physical appearance, whether it's in dress or maybe it's uh, mannerisms, those kinds of uh, things. The Bible, though, speaks about the inward man of the heart. There's that difference between the saved and the lost as well. Sexual sin. It's in the Bible. It's in Revelation chapter 18, verse 3. We know that's the way of the unsaved. Beginning in the early years in school, kids are encouraged to engage in sexual sin. But God says to his people, you follow a different way. You have a different standard. That's something that you avoid to keep your ropes white. Safe people know and believe that God reigns over the world. Revelation 19, verse 6. He's the one who's in charge of things. There is that spiritual kingdom. Christ is Lord of Lords. He's King of Kings. He's ruling over all things. But the unsaved, they laugh at those concepts. There is no God. And even if there is, he doesn't rule. Look at the state of the world. There are wars and there's famine. What kind of God do you believe in? What kind of God would let these things take place? Among the unrighteous, man is king over all things. The king of our life is going to be one of the things that distinguishes whether we are among the saved or the lost. The unrighteous are willing to be deceived about spiritual matters. Revelation 20, verse 3. The unrighteous, though, they say we're not willing to be deceived. We want to be observant. We want to know the truth. We want to follow the truth. Saved people participate in the first resurrection or baptism. Revelation 20, verse 6. The unsaved, at least many of them do not. Saved people, they want, they desire, they thirst for that river of water of life. Revelation 21, verse 6. The unsaved say, that's not the pool, that's not the river that I want to drink from. I want the polluted water. I want the foul water. I want the water of sin. Unsaved people participate in things like witchcraft and sorcery and idolatry. Revelation 21, verse 8. The saved, they'll flee from these things. The unrighteous are willing to try to alter God's plan, add to it and take from it. Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. The saved say no. The saved say this is God's word. We may not like all of it. There may be some bitter parts as we heard earlier. But the unsaved say that uh, we can switch things around. God's people say no. When we start to think about the differences between the saved and the lost, the contrasts are very distinct. In fact, there's virtually no way to not recognize that a Christian is trying to live a different kind of life. And God says to the world, this is the kind of life. Come ye out from among them. We find those kinds of expressions in scriptures. You can't live according to the old life. You've got to put it to death. God says there's a different way. And if we want heaven, we've got to pursue that different way. We've got to leave behind the ways of the world in every way that we possibly can and live for him. God says it's a better way. And it's also the only way that leads to life and heaven. Tonight, we trust that you're here because as we think about all those bad ways that we read about in Revelation, and certainly that's not everything the Bible says about them, you want to leave those things behind. Maybe you've not become a Christian. You've thought about it, trying to get out of uh, that old way of life, but you've never done it. Tonight you can. Tonight, if you believe that Christ is the deliverer from sin, you can decide to say, look at the devil and say, no, I'm not going to follow your way any longer. I'm going to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. And I'm going to be one of his people. I'm going to participate in that first resurrection. I'm going to be baptized into him. And then I'm going to follow the Lamb, as we heard earlier, wherever he goes. Because he's the one that leads to life. If we have become a Christian, and for some reason we have been lured back into that old way of life, will we not tonight look at our choice and realize that we've made a big, big mistake? And it's time to come home. If we can help you become a Christian... If we can help restore you as a Christian or aid you in another way, 
We let us know about that need as we stand and sing the selected song.